Titus chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 10 through 16. Just as a reminder, Paul writes this letter to this young protege, Titus, so that he can continue the work that Paul started. Paul started this work of gospel. And this, these churches are starting to come to life in this island of Crete. And uh, these churches were filled with immature believers. And so um, Paul writes to Titus to, to finish this work to a group of people who were saturated in a pagan culture, not unlike our own. So if you just kind of homogenize our experience in America, we are a harsh, a cynical, selfish, lazy, broken group of people, not to put it too bluntly, well, that's Crete. And so Paul writes to Titus to shape the people uh, into maturity. And this is what he says in verse 1. If you remember, this was his theme. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. I mean, that's where he's going. Have this faith this thing in knowledge, transform your lives in, into truth, and your life will end up showing it. And so Paul starts off by telling Titus God's plan to see all of that happen. He says it's discipleship, life on life, specifically in Paul's mind, developing leaders who, by their example, can influence the church, uh, their example of uh, the relationship at home, you know, uh, Husbands treating their wives and their children in an appropriate way. Those types of leaders. Leaders who have character and that are known to others for their character. And as well as their convictions, their certainty, their grip on the truth. That's kind of where he says to start this whole, this whole aspect of growing up the church. Because Paul has some concerns, very specific concerns for Crete. And you're going to see that this is so familiar to our own experience. Paul looks at the church and says, they don't know much. Therefore, they don't live like the gospel is transforming them. They are, they are more informed by their surroundings they are, than they are with the gospel. And so his concern is the same thing we would talk about today, right? How can we be in this world, as messed up as it is, and not be of this world? How, how do we do this Christian thing in a world that is so opposed to the things of God and yet have it not have a bigger influence on us than us on it? How do we be salt and light? Isn't that what the scripture says? Be a, be a flavoring influence, a preserving agent in your society. How do we do that when everything in the world pushes against the gospel in us, okay? Those are the questions that Paul answers here for Titus, and the answer is fairly simple, so simple we can all understand it, and yet it's very, very profound. Here's what he says over and over again, three small chapters, let the gospel of God's grace inform you, let the gospel of God's grace change you. That's what he says. He appeals to the grace of God for all these things we're talking about, from faith to obedience, okay? Now, I've never been given a task this large. But let's pretend for a second that God gave you the task. What would you start with? You're dealing with this culture. I mean, if you were to write a list of things that are kind of influencing us and shaping us, what would you start with? I, I don't know what the answer, if there was an answer that would be another one to this, but Paul clearly has one thing in mind. Make up leaders quick. Get these guys going. Develop and appoint leaders, verse 5, he says. And, and he lays out for us in the section we're in a more specific situation that kind of describes the job of an elder. In fact, we really start in verse 9. We ended it with it last week where verse 9, he talks to the elders about their job. He says they must hold firm to a trustworthy word as taught so they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Sound doctrine and going after those people who suggest another way. 
than Jesus. That's their job. Here in verses 10 through 16, he gets real practical about a situation affecting the church in Crete. So let's read it together and we'll pick it apart. Starting in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what not they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's interesting that today of all days, we picked um, this Sunday to show a summer camp video. Because if I reflect back on summer camp, I think I've done summer camp since Jesus ascended to heaven. I've done a million summer camps. And I used to split up junior high and high school and take multiple trips in the summer. And if I back up about 25 to 30 years, I took a group of junior hires from Chicago to the Smoky Mountains for a summer camp. We rented an A-frame cabin, and it was on a mountain. And so you would get in the front driveway, one-story one house. The backside of the house was like four stories as it kind of descended down the hillside. And we would go out during the day, go whitewater rafting or whatever, and we came back one afternoon, and I was unloading the van. The kids all jumped out. There was probably 50 kids or so, and I hear all this commotion going on behind the cabin, and I have no idea what it is, and I go around behind the cabin, and these kids are about from here 20 feet from a black bear, okay, ooh, a big black bear, and uh, it wasn't doing anything. It was minding its own business, had its head in a bean can. It was just trying to, you know, co go along, coexist, and, and so there it was, and everybody's snapping pictures. This is when they had cameras, actual cameras with film in it, and they were taking pictures of this, this bear, and, and the leader in me kind of rose up and said, I probably shouldn't let them get too comfortable with the bear. Good leader, right? All right. Um, so I thought, well, I would just shoo this bear, this harmless bear, away. So I climbed over a fence, and I walked about between me and the front row. It's maybe 10 feet away from the bear, and I went, hey! Get out of here. And this bear rose up on the hind legs and charged me. I was up four flights of stairs in about two seconds, okay? <laughs> Fastest human you ever saw possible. So, so here's my illustration for you this morning. Some things on the surface appear harmless, like a black bear with its head in a bean can. Some things look harmless, but they'll destroy you if you're not careful. So let me ask you a question as we kick up this discussion this morning. How important to you is sound doctrine? Some of you go, it's really, really important. Some of you have no idea what I just said. In fact, you, you look at precision of doctrine as somewhat of a harmless discussion, like, hey, let it be, you know, live and let live. And, uh, and yet here's what Paul tells Titus to teach a trustworthy word now, to some it might seem a little bit too hard. It might seem harmless, but here's what I know. People, all people, you people are influenced by your world, your life, and your traditions. You have, um, I don't know, how many scars do you have from you? How many things have you done in your life that have been uh, more damaging to your life? How many things have been done to you to, to damage you, right? 
And therefore, we're in this, this spiritual angst, this search. I'm lonely. I'm hurting. I'm lost. I need answers. And, and, and then set aside the fact that there's all these traditions. And these traditions aren't doing us favors either most of the time. Because they suggest other things like uh, wrong thoughts about who you are. Wrong thoughts about how God feels about you or what God is. And wrong thoughts about how to solve the problem in your heart. Because every person has a problem in the heart. There's this anxiousness, there's a void, there is a search, there is a longing, there is an angst. And because it's so real and it's so palpable, um, and we're always on a perpetual search to fill what's lacking, it means that we're susceptible to deceit. I'm just, there's just something, I gotta have it. And so what do we do? What does mankind do? I search for it. Some will work. And so we're always open to having someone and something lie to us. And by the way, you probably know this, but newsflash, Satan is a master deceiver. You know this, right? He makes lies look like the truth. He makes bears look cute, theologically speaking. So Paul tells the church in Corinth that he gave his instructions so that we would not be outwitted by Satan that we wouldn't be ignorant of his schemes. That's why he instructs the church. Be ready for that. And one of Satan's sharpest tools, and he uses it here in Crete, is to raise up false teachers who oppose the good news, the gospel. And because, at least in Paul's mind, Satan is so good at spreading uh, lies, here's what he says to the elders. Elders have to be passionate about protecting the sheep because lies are coming in. Lies are suggesting themselves as options everywhere. And so that's what he has in mind here in this section. It's almost like a real-life job description of an elder. Protect the sheep. Now, I've got three particular things I think Paul says in this section. Here's how we do that. We silence the deceivers, we confront the church, and we teach the doctrine of sanctification. I think that's what Paul says in this section. So before we get into it, let's, let's deal with what I think is an obvious elephant in the text. This thing is so out of touch, culturally speaking, to our modern senses. It is politically incorrect, isn't it? To name people, call people out and call them names as deceivers and detestable, to mandate silence of anybody who wants to talk or share an opinion sounds wrong, to rebuke the church sounds harsh, feels uncomfortable, let's just admit that, right? Well, let me explain to you why it's uncomfortable based on our culture. Because we live in a culture that doesn't promote the idea of exclusive truth. Things have changed, church. Here, here's how truth is defined. It's, it's as individual as there are people. As long as you're sincere and mean well, whatever is true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. It's relative. It's subjective. It doesn't really matter. There isn't anything like pinpoint precision on truth. Truth can be whatever, right? So you can promote any idea, any belief. It all has equal merit. But that's not what the scriptures teach about truth. And this is where it gets uncomfortable. You have to be okay with the words of God defining these things as opposed to how you feel or what your culture says about these things. When it comes to the issue of the gospel, the good news of how mankind is saved, there's one way. Not many. One. Narrow is the way, the scriptures say. When it comes to the absolute truth or how the church is changed or sanctified, the scriptures is very narrow 
of the work of the Spirit in the people of God through the Word. That's what it says. And all the other issues that Paul has to deal with through Titus in the church in Crete, very specific. So let's just admit right up front, this is in our, this is in our culture. So we're going to have to be able to um, be prepared for this. Paul isn't tolerant, okay? So just be cool with that in the midst of our politically correct world. All right, let's look at what Paul told Titus. Verse 9 again, before we launch into uh, a more specific illustration. He says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here's how. Number one, silence the deceivers. Verses 10 and 11 For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. Paul describes them here, who they are, these deceivers. He calls them the insubordinate. In other words, they're insubordinate because they will not submit to the word of God. They have added extra biblical things onto the word of God. Word of God and. That's where they've gone here. Paul says what they've done is just have made up stories, myths he calls them, and made up laws. These are legal uh, demands, all right? Paul also calls them rebellious because God's word tells us that it alone is sufficient to grow us up into grace and knowledge, that God's word has the job, and God's word is faithful to finish the work that it started, and yet these people, these men, this group, this circumcision group are suggesting that if you really want to be holy, if you really want to please God, then it includes believing and doing all of this too, okay? That's, that's where they're coming from. Even the things that God never talked about. So they've got this list that was never mentioned, extra biblical, they've laid on the church and said, and, okay, make sense? All right, Paul calls them empty talkers and deceivers. Uh, it is one word in the original language, and I love the definition of this one word. Here's what it means in the original. Those who peddle big words with vaporous content. <laughs> Works, doesn't it? Poisonous gas. I work in the garage a lot. My sons are convinced that someday I'm gonna breathe, something's gonna knock me out. And I hope that's true. Um, and that's sort of the idea, some noxious gas in their words that totally numbs the mind and shapes the person. That's why they are empty talkers. It is big talk without substance. He even goes so far, now this is really uncomfortable, he calls them out by name. He calls them the circumcision party. You know those guys. And, and when he wrote this, every one of the church goes, oh, he's talking about Bob. He's talking about John. Those guys. They're the ones of the circumcision party. They're the ones I went to their Bible study on Wednesday. And they, they're the ones that Paul is concerned with. This group is mentioned multiple times in Scripture, in Acts 10 and Acts 11. Galatians, the whole letter to the church in, in Galatia is about this whole Judaizer coming in and influencing another gospel. And, of course, Paul has the harshest things he's ever said to and about a church in that book. Let them be damned to hell forever if they mess with the gospel. That's how he says it. So Paul is fairly exercised about this exclusive truth issue, Okay. And who these men are, this, this circumcision party, they were Jews who joined the early church, and it's a very simple message, a gospel plus message, a Jesus plus message, Jesus and, right? Yes, you got to believe in Jesus. Certainly, he died on the cross and rose again, but there's something else. There's these rituals. There's these meals. There is circumcision. There is this law 
in addition to Jesus and what he accomplished, and that together equals your hope of eternity. That together equals heaven, all of that. They were, in Paul's mind, liars and deceivers who got in and around the church and taught things like a different salvation. That you can be saved by a combination of God and man effort. How about a different Jesus? This Jesus. And this is what happens all around our world. Make Jesus more like us and make us more like Jesus and we're better off. All religions do this. And this Jesus, he wasn't quite sufficient enough to save us. He needed our work to help him. A different righteousness. One that equals legalism. Like if I do these things, if I have this outward external behavior, that is my righteousness. My effort is my righteousness. A totally different gospel. You see that? Totally different gospel. Now notice what they're doing, verse 11. Simple phrase, upsetting the church. Now let me start with their motive um, so you know why this is upsetting. The text simply says for shameful gain. If you like to write in your Bible, you can just write a dollar sign next to that. Clearly it had to do with money, but it probably had to do with power and influence and, you know, all that kind of stuff as well. And let me just say, this is nothing new. There are peddlers of lies who are constantly telling the church something else other than Jesus, and they sell it. We have a, you know, I'm not going to name names. I thought about it this week, actually. I actually thought, should I call people out like Paul does? Like that guy or that guy. And I just, at this point, I'm not ready to do that. But let's just generalize the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. People who suggest that the gospel isn't about transforming your heart into holiness, but that God wants you rich and healthy and happy. That's also a lie. Now, maybe you're rich. I don't care. And maybe you're happy. I'm hoping so. But Jesus didn't leave heaven, come to this earth, and die on a cross to make you rich. That's not how this works. And yet it's sold everywhere. And it's clearly what's happening here, shameful gain, for their own profit. That's why they're teaching these things. Nothing new. At first glance, that phrase upsetting the whole family sort of sounds like the people see the lies and see the intention and kind of are burdened by it, don't know what to do with it. They're upset about it, but that's not at all how he uses it. So let me just give you the, the, the kind of the concept of whole families here so you know what's going on. He is not talking about mom and dad and kids as whole families. He's referring to the church in Crete. Crete met in homes, kind of like small groups or redemption communities. The church was scattered in these small enclaves and these groups. Those are who he's referring to as families, okay? And he's upsetting the church is what these false teachers are. That's what he's referring to. And specifically, what is upsetting uh, in a practical way is not the fact that they can see the problems of the bad teaching. It's that they're being influenced by the bad teaching. They're actually becoming like the men who are teaching. They're upsetting the rhythm and the reality of Christ's church. That's what's happening in this context. So let me, let me stop for a second and let's hang out here for a moment. I want to tell you something that's absolutely true. And I pray that you will respect it. I, I pray that it will sink deep in your heart and you'll remember it forever. I pray you write it down or whatever. Don't ever forget this. Bad doctrine is never harmless. It is never harmless. It always damages people. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here. That's why he gets so exercised about it, not only in this passage, but in Galatians. And before we look at kind of, like I told you when we began this study, a one-dimensional picture of a problem in a church 2,000 years ago that I can't relate to, let's not be naive. This Jesus plus gospel is in this room. It's right here, right now. 
Let's just raise our hand and admit it. It happened to me this week. It happens to all of us. When you're absolutely convinced that what you need is things to go your way to equal your joy, isn't that another gospel? It's in us. When we find our security in my good week, I had a great week. I didn't fall off the wagon. I didn't do the wrong thing. I made my decisions about this and I did that and it worked out great and I feel great about myself today. My work was worth it and that's another gospel. And when we find our security in anything but the work of Christ alone, by default, we're trusting our eternities in us. Do you understand? Like God's going to look at me and he's going to be proud of me and he's going to see the things that I've accomplished and how great my week in 2016 was. And You don't say it. I know you don't even think it consciously, but that's what you're living like. Like your hope is in you. And when that happens, there's only two outcomes. Pride or despair. So let me split the two so you know what we're talking about. Let's say you happen to be one of the more disciplined types. Not me, okay? You're one of those people who whiteboard your life and you set agendas and goals and you actually use that things to do list on your iPhone. I don't. You're really, um, you're really disciplined. And you can't figure out why the rest of the world is such a knucklehead, why they can't get their act together. And they're probably their own worst enemy because they're doing their own harm and um, you look around and compare yourself and you conclude that you're not like them and so you find your strength in you. Pride. Simply because you can hunker down better than other people can hunker down. And see you're the other person. There's a lot of people like this that come to church every Sunday you're the struggler. You're one of those people who had uh, one of the weeks you don't want to talk about. You can't get your act together. At least it feels that way. feels like there's always a defeat you can't measure up, and therefore you walk around in a spiritual fog, absolutely convinced that God doesn't love you like he loves all these other people. Now, sometimes I really enjoy talking to the church. Like, I really like seeing you and stuff. But sometimes the things you say really burden me. From time to time, I'll be walking around a room like this. And this happened months and months ago. But I talked to a young lady who just never had a smile on her face. And I dig a little bit. Why? Are you okay? You all right? And she said, I can't believe all this is real. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, when we worship, these people raising their hands and singing like everything's good and hunky. It's not that way. There's no way. It can't be true. So they're faking it. Well, that's what happens when you are in a perpetual pit of struggle. You can't perceive life or joy anywhere else. And all you simply do is look at your life, and because you don't measure up, you conclude, therefore, I'm worthless to God. And you know what people who go that far do? They medicate that feeling with sin. And they just go back to the pit. Well, if I don't feel like I'm loved, if I can't get where they're going or where I think I should go, then I'll just bury myself in more harm. And I'll, I'll just add more sin to my life. And here's something that's sad but true. Even that doesn't last very long. <laughs> because you can go and saturate yourself in the world in sin and then you conclude, that isn't it either. I'm worn out by that. And so what the human heart does at that moment is create lists of things to fix the problem. If I go to church, if I pray more, 
If I do this, if I don't do that, if I say this, I don't say that. You create lists of things in your mind. But here's something you're forgetting, church. If either one of those things, whether it's pride because you got things together or it's insecurity because you struggle all the time, you're not understanding the gospel. The scriptures say that law and regulation cannot form or transform the human heart. Law does not equal and has never equaled godliness. Can't do it. So here's a thought that you need to remember. Here's what the gospel says. This is what we confess, that the only thing that conforms us to Christ is the same thing that converts us to Christ. Jesus and his gospel plus nothing. Church, I'm just telling you, if it's anything else, we're under it. The burden of having to perform and work and fix and be better than some other standard other than Jesus' righteousness for me will wear us out. You were converted by grace alone and you are transformed by God's grace alone through the mercy of God. Do you understand that, church? Say amen, somebody. Okay. That is the first job description of an elder. Silence the deceivers, those who who suggest that there's some other good news. Here's the second thing we're to do. Confront the church. Verses 13 and 14. He's talking about this reputation from one of the prophets of the Cretans. They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. I have to admit, um, at first glance, it's a little difficult to figure out who Paul is talking about. So let me just show you the the word them. um, The declaration in verse 13 is referring to whole families back in verse 11. Okay? So it's the ones who Paul says to rebuke sharply so that they'll be sound in their faith. Does that make sense? So this is what he's not saying. He's not saying to to shape the deceiver's sound faith because the deceivers don't have faith. He's talking about the church, them, the upset families who need to be rebuked so that their faith will be sound. He's talking to the church. Confront the church with their errors. Rebuke them because they are misled to believe these tragic, tragic things that God requires more than Christ alone because they're selling law And they're selling effort. And they're selling man-made righteousness. Do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. And therefore, if you do that list, it doesn't matter what else you do. And Paul's conclusion of the church is they're not doing very well. They're they're not healthy. He's concerned for their faith. Look at the phrase that he uses in verse 13. He says to rebuke the church so that they will be sound in the faith. That word sound is used not only here in in verse 13. He also used it in verse 9 when he's talking about sound doctrine. He uses it in chapter 2, verse 1 to talk about sound doctrine. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about sound in faith and love. The word sound literally means hygiene or health. Interesting. In Paul's mind, the church is sick and dirty because it's believed another version of the gospel. And he wants them to be healthy. He wants them to be whole. They've been shaped by those lies. In verse 14, he tells us what a few of those are. Jewish myths, he says. Just simple speculations about Old Testament genealogies that have nothing to do with salvation, nothing at all to do with the gospel, and yet they spend most of their time arguing about nonsense. Ever been in one of those small groups? Leave Just nonsense. Has nothing to do at all with shaping the heart of the believer. Just chatter. 
commands of men. That's what they're talking about. Let's use this word. Everyone knows this word, legalism. And here's why this is a problem, because the human heart loves legalism. Now, you would think it's opposite. Like, I hate it when everybody puts laws on me. But the religious heart, the religious heart loves legalism. You know why? Because it never gets to the heart. And the heart, we're all guilty. If I can be strong enough this week or that week or that month or that year, I'm okay. But when I have to deal with what Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And I tell you that when you hate, you're, you're a murderer at heart. Well, that's a whole different evaluation, isn't it? Doesn't that make us all guilty under the law? Well, we don't want it to get to the heart, so let's leave it on the externals. Let's, let's leave it in legalism. So when someone teaches legalism, we're going to want to wrap our arms around it because it's the ladder we want to climb to God. Make sense? Okay. That's the two job descriptions so far. Let me add one more in the few minutes I have less, left. So first one was silence the deceivers, confront the church. Here's the third one. Teach the doctrine of sanctification. According to Paul, the church was devoting themselves to myths and man-made commandments. That is not how transformation works. You and I are not sanctified by ignoring what the Bible says. We're not sanctified by adding to it or subtracting from it, all right? Sanctification, the word simply means set apart to be holy. You just think changed life, okay? Sanctification happens this way and only this way. When the Spirit of God takes the words of God and transforms the human heart. The same way he did when you came to Jesus the first time. That's how it works. It's how it's always worked. Here's what you have to understand. According to the Scriptures, the heart is the center of our emotions, our will, and every decision. In other words, you don't do anything you don't really want to do for whatever reasons you choose to do them. The heart is the center of all those things. Here's what the scripture says about the heart. That God shapes the heart through his word to, watch this, to love Christ. And and he's making a good point here. If we just create lists of things that we're not to do, and we are to do, none of that will make us one bit holy, not one bit more like Jesus. That's what he's talking about. False teachers were saying, if you're going to do it right, do it this way. If you did it this way, you'd be holy. Verse, verse 15, Paul basically says, no, to the pure all things are pure, to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. That sounds really familiar to Romans 14 to me when there was a controversy brewing in the church there where some people who would buy meat at the market that was used in a sacrifice to an idol, some would say, no, 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 don't ever eat. Don't ever eat that meat. That'll be wrong. God will be mad at you. And Paul writes this kind of understanding of purity through this lens of God's transformation, that those things on the outside don't defile the inside. And in essence, that's not how this works. Don't let someone tell you what true holiness is, where God never made a statement whatsoever, okay? To the pure, to those who are being transformed, you don't have to worry about the lists, specific lists. God's Spirit is working on the heart, and here's what I know about God's Spirit. He is a great teacher, right? Okay, so here's what the elders are to do. How we are to teach that the church is to be sanctified and changed. It is not from the outside in by rules and regulations. It's from the inside out 
by the Holy Spirit using the word of God to transform hearts. That's how it works. So, and Paul says the conclusion, in essence, is the opposite of what he concludes for these, this group of the circumcision. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but deny him by the works. The opposite will also be true for those who trust in the word of God and are transformed by the Spirit. You will see that their words and their life matched up. There will be holiness as a result of this confession. That's how God works this out, all right? God's work through the word makes professors of Christ who bear good fruit. That's what Jesus says. You'll recognize my people by their fruit. You'll see it in them, the work that God does in them. So I kind of wrote this down. Maybe this makes sense. It helps clarify it. No man-made work on the outside ever shapes the inside. The Spirit of God inside always shapes the outside. Does that make sense? Hope it does. So, I don't know if you had time to consider the question I threw at you. If, if Paul were to walk in here and confront us, what would he say? You probably felt it like I did when I was studying this passage. He'd confront the same things, wouldn't he? That our hearts don't struggle any less than these believers in Crete. That our flesh prefers law. And here's one reason why. Because we prefer to be our own savior. We prefer that. The gospel story is a beautiful story. And as much as it is a beautiful story, it's a brutal description of our condition. It's a beautiful story that God would become like man and come to this earth to die in my place. But what it says is that my, my heart is twisted, so twisted that its flesh will still long for other things other than Jesus all of my life. And so what we have to preach constantly, constantly, is that we cannot be saved by our works and we cannot be changed by our works. Neither one of those things is possible. That's what Paul's fighting for here. If these men of the circumcision group are just coming in and adding a little bit to the gospel and Paul gets exercised to fight against those other things, here's what he's telling the church. You love and savor Jesus, that's it. The finished work of Christ for you. Fall in love with that story and I guarantee it will morph how you feel about those other gods. All those other things you chase after and all those things that you're looking to satisfy, the gospel will make them miserable as they should be. That's the gospel. Salvation and transformation happen as the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and shapes our heart to see Jesus and to love Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I pray that our church, your church, would fall in love with the good news and the Savior of the good news, who is Jesus, our Savior. I pray, God, that when we think about our life and living, that we'd wrestle with this reality, that Jesus is our satisfaction. In spite of our wayward hearts and flesh that want to go other places, God, teach us every day that Jesus is who we want. Thank you for him that he never leaves or forsakes. Thank you that there is no condemnation or separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, that the work is finished in your kingdom for us and that we're just experiencing it in time. I pray, God, that over these next months and years that our love for the gospel would be greater than our love for anything else. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.